you'll want to get out your sermon outline that says the strange tale of Tamar on it. We're in Genesis chapter 38. encourage you to uh, open your Bibles there. We're going to go through the text as we go along. It's a long text, and it's a very difficult text. So let's start with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, you have uh, brought us to another difficult passage this morning, so I ask that you would use it to warn us, to instruct us, to discipline us, to give us wisdom and lead us towards righteousness. Help us to learn from its example, comfort us by its depictions of grace that's neither seen nor deserved. Work your word into our lives this morning. By the power of your spirit, bring about needed change in each one of us. For this, as always, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Just that last month, actually about two weeks ago, uh, Greg Smith, who is an executive director at Goldman Sachs in New York, quit his job. But he did it in a very high-profile way. He announced his resignation in a scathing op-ed piece in the New York Times. The article denounced Goldman Sachs for extensive ethical failures. By his own admission, he knew of nothing that Goldman Sachs had done that broke the law. Instead, he accused the company of maintaining an organizational culture of legal but unethical behavior. I thought the story is, is important for the church because first it reminds us we need to have a public witness about the spiritual nature of work and business and economics. And too often we talk about the culture only in terms of things like immorality. Second, it needs to remind us um, that we have to provide more to people than just obeying the rules. A sense of duty is important, but sound ethics involves teaching people to find their sense of meaning and fulfillment in the right places and in the right ways. Smith writes, when he joined Goldman Sachs 12 years ago, he experienced an organizational culture that was focused on earning the company's success by delivering good service to the customer. He writes, it sounds surprising to a skeptical public, but culture was a vital part of Goldman Sachs' success revolved around teamwork, integrity, humility, and doing right by our clients. The culture was the secret sauce that made this place great and allowed us to earn our clients' trust for over 143 years. It wasn't just about making money. That alone won't sustain a firm for long. It had to do with pride and belief in the organization. And it said the company's leadership modeled the right behavior, signaled what was expected to subordinates, rewarded it when they saw it. However, they had a transition in leadership in 2006. And he alleges the new leaders model, teach, and reward a very different kind of behavior. As a result, a new culture emerged. He writes, Now I attend derivative sales meetings where not one single minute is spent asking questions about how we can help clients. It's purely about how we can make the most money off of them makes me ill how callously people talk 
about ripping their clients off. Now, I have no idea whether his allegations are true. But I thought the lessons to learn uh, from that uh, apply regardless of whether they're true or not, particularly by watching how people responded to this uh, revelation. The New York Times article obviously caused an uproar on Wall Street in the financial press. And the reaction mostly confirmed what he was saying. In fact, that the financial sector has this very legalistic understanding of ethics. If no laws were broken, what's the problem? In fact, the columnist for Forbes magazine, a business magazine, sneered that he's just having a midlife crisis. And he wrote that it's immature whining to expect that companies should strive to serve their customers. Now, if what Smith is saying is true, the actual biggest problem here still remains, which is the investors, which Smith claims that they continue to buy garbage from Goldman Sachs. And he says, and until the clients take responsibility for themselves, Goldman Sachs will retain the incentive to sell to them. And one of the root causes, the mortgage nightmare, not to mention things like the Bernie Madoff Ponzi scheme disaster, one of the root causes was investor gullibility. We're going to make a lot of money really quick without having to be show any sort of responsibility. And he says, if people don't enter into these deals very carefully now, after what we've been through with the economy, then they never will. And all, all of this sort of boils down to the claim that ethical behavior consists solely in following the letter of the law. It's okay to rip people off, intentionally selling them financial products, and he writes here, that are disadvantageous for them to buy. That means they're buying things that are working against them instead of for them. As long as you don't break the law in doing it. And that's an empty materialistic view of life. The whole point here is law isn't the only aspect of ethics. If we teach people merely to follow the rules, but also teach them to take satisfaction in gaming the system for their own benefit, then we've fallen short. The only way to avoid materialism is to teach people that their sense of satisfaction in earning and being successful is by doing work that makes the world better. And arguing that even if it's not ethical, as long as it's legal, I can do it, begins to slide down the slippery slope from right to wrong. And I've been thinking about this, obviously, all week. It seems there's been a lot of these slippery slides lately. Going back through the last uh, few weeks of news reports, just very quickly, I came up with about eight of these, what I would call a slippery slope uh, incident. And if you're not sure about those, just ask the New Orleans Saints. Defensive players in football are paid a lot of money to hit and tackle offensive players. That's their job. And when there's a good hit, meaning a really hard hit, however within the rules, everyone applauds. And then once in a while, the coaches may respond to a great hit by handing out prizes. Originally, it was things like a gift card to a favorite restaurant. And then it became a small cash bonus, like a $100 bill. Remember, these guys are making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. 
Then it became $1,000. And soon it morphed into letting people know their targets in advance, a bounty system. $1,000 if you hit this guy on the other team. $2,000 if you knock him out of the game. Now, a defensive lineman may execute a good hit on the opposing quarterback. That is, after all, the nature of his job. But to injure a quarterback on purpose, as is alleged in this current NFL bounty scandal, is clearly wrong. Dr. Veith, who's the provost of Patrick Henry, writing about this, said, this phrase stunned me. He said, it is to sin in one's vocation. Something that started off as a good-natured fun, a small reward for an exciting play, soon becomes something wrong. It was a long slide down the slippery slope from right to wrong. But these things don't just happen to the rich on Wall Street or the famous on the football field. They happen to you and me as well. We're just as susceptible to the slippery slope as anyone else, and God knows that. I think that's one reason why he put this kind of slippery slope incident into the Bible to show us how these things happen, how legal becomes unethical, how small rewards turn into big bounties, how little sin leads to big sin, and how a little slip leads to a big slide. And we have a picture of just such a slippery slope in today's passage. If you remember, Joseph has been sold off into slavery into Egypt uh, by his brothers, and so now they think they can pretty much do whatever they want. So here in Genesis 38, we have this small side trip into the life of Judah and witness the slippery slope that would come to define his life. So turn with me in your Bibles, Genesis 38, and we're going to see that it all starts because Judah is in the wrong place. He's in the wrong place. That's the first blank in your outline. Verses 1 and 2. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. I love that name. I'm going to see Hurrah. <laughs> there Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. This entire passage, all the way from verse 1 to verse 30, is very important in settling the seniority of the succession of the line of Judah. This passage, of course, tells us the line of Judah eventually will pass through the seniority of Perez instead of Zerah. And that in and of itself is going to be important for God's redemptive plan in the long run. But it also serves three other purposes. From a literary point of view, this passage heightens the tension of the reader of the, for the story of Joseph. You know, it's sort of like a meanwhile back at the ranch kind of thing. You know the story, the heroine is on the train tracks and the train is approaching and the camera clicks back to the ranch where the cowboy's feeding the cows or something like that. And you're wondering, what's going to happen to the girl tied to the train tracks? You know, and we've now left Joseph in the hands of slave traders who sold him into captivity in Egypt. And suddenly we cut away to the life of Judah. It heightens the tension in the story of Joseph. Secondly, it gives us a backdrop against which we can measure the character of Joseph. We've already begun to perceive there's something very special 
uh, very unique about Joseph. In the next chapter, we're going to see him react to difficult situations with uh, great ethics, with impeccable morality. And this passage is going to give us greater appreciation for that than we would have had if it had been excluded. Thirdly, this does something else. It reveals to us the character of the man who would become the leader of all of the brothers, the leader of the sons of Jacob. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner puts it this way, as a rude interruption of the story of Joseph, this passage serves other purposes. It creates suspense for the reader with Joseph's future in the balance. It puts his faith and chastity, soon to be described, in a context which sets off their rarity and it fills out the portrait of the effective leader among the brothers. So for all these reasons and more, it's apparent this is not some wandering random detour. Moses has an agenda for inserting the story here. And the Bible never includes scandalous material needlessly. There's always an actual wholesome, thoughtful purpose for recording the acts of depravity that appear in the Bible. God always has his purposes for recording these events. And notice that Moses does it just about as delicately as you can do it. Could have said this much less delicately than he did. It's pretty horrible as you read it, but it could have been said with a lot less sensitivity. Now, all of Jacob's sons have known that both Abraham and Isaac has warned them against marrying the daughters of the Canaanites. Abraham solemnly charged his servant Eliezer all the way back in Genesis 24 that I make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites. And then when Isaac sent uh, Jacob off to find a wife, he gave him the same instructions, Genesis 28. And Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. So Judah, who's Jacob's fourth son, now occupies the place of birthright uh, by virtue of the various sins of his three older brothers, which we saw back in chapters 34 and 35. He knows that he must not marry a Canaanite. And yet, despite his position and despite his knowledge, he does just that. It happens when Judah goes down to the area of Adullam Southwest of Jerusalem visits a Canaanite named Harah and met uh, this unnamed Canaanite woman known only as the daughter of Shua. Evidently, it was lust at first sight, or as one biblical scholar Riley said, a union based on chemistry rather than principle. Because the language describing their relationship is, is really abrupt. Verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her. This woman is fertile. She bears him three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. I don't really have time to get into it, but all the names are word plays in Hebrew. But they don't really affect the story. It'll say he settled in Kaziv, and which means deception in Hebrew. So he actually lives in deception. And that's important, but... Uh, so this half-Canaanite Ur and his Canaanite wife Tamar are now set to carry on Judah's line of inheritance. Now, there's two big problems here. First problem is Judah's in the wrong place. Notice right from the start, 
verse 1. I'm a little warm in here, so. The, uh, it says, it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hurrah. Well, where's everyone supposed to be? Bethel. That's where Jacob's family is supposed to live. And every time they move away from where God's told them to live, something bad happens. And here's Judah moving away. The text says he went down from his brothers. And that's because uh, Hebron, Bethel, Jerusalem, all along a ridgeline, and to leave any of those places is to literally go down. And Judah goes down both literally and spiritually. He's now in the wrong place. And when you're in the wrong place, usually that means you're with the wrong people. Guess what? Judah's with the wrong people. He moves in among the Canaanites. This God does not want. It's not that complicated. Go where God tells you to go, blessings. Go where God tells you not to go, curses. Bad things happen. We've seen it with Abraham, we've seen it with Isaac, we've seen it with Jacob, and now we see it with Judah. I mean, it's just a little thing, right? I mean, the land of Adullam isn't that far away. In fact, later on in Israelite history, this land is going to be given to the tribe of Judah. So it's pretty close. Not too bad, just a little bad, okay? But Satan loves a slippery slope. Judah departed from his brothers, and this doesn't happen by accident. It involves a deliberate choice on his part. We don't know the reason for the choice. Perhaps he saw the way Hurrah, uh, people of Adullam lived. Maybe Hurrah's name is descriptive, and he's just a fun guy to be with. You know, maybe he thought, I don't want to live a boring life like Isaac or my father Jacob. I want adventure, excitement, some enjoyment out of life. I got to move down there with Hurrah. You know, even though at this point his brothers aren't a very godly bunch, his move signifies a move away, a turning aside from the covenant people of God. And that's where corruption often begins. Today it happens a lot with high school and college students. A young persons attracted to the lifestyle of the cool kids. Perhaps he made a profession of faith, but he's no longer interested in the things of God. He thinks his parents migrated here from another planet. So at some point, the teen says, I'm going to hang out with this group at school and will slowly distance himself from his church friends. And it won't be long until he's just like his new friends in thought life and language and morals. And that can happen regardless of what kind of school you go to or what kind of college you go to. Um, and it doesn't mean that he won't return to the faith though it usually means that he or she will return to the faith with a lot more sorrow than they bargained for. But it's not only true of teens. The Bible says this about all of us. 1 Corinthians 15.33, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So we think we're going to stand our ground, but for most people, the reality is that we'll drift away without even realizing it. And while the need to build relationships with unbelievers for the ultimate purpose of showing them Christ, to do so just for the purposes of fun and camaraderie will corrupt us, not convert them. And corruption often begins 
when a person makes a choice to distance himself or herself from godly people and build relationships with ungodly people. And that's what happens here. Judas' decision to go to the wrong place and live with the wrong people begins this inevitable slide down the slippery slope from right to wrong. So, of course, things start getting worse. And next we see several people having the wrong intentions. The wrong intentions, starting uh, again at verse 2. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Keziv when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste his semen on the ground so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. So Judah sees this Canaanite woman, the daughter of a man named Shua, whose name probably means riches. Her name's not given. And we read end of verse 2 that he took her and went into her. Now this is a case of taking her in marriage. It's not a sexual assault like we've seen earlier. However the, however, the emphasis here is clearly on the physical, not the spiritual. Judah saw her, he liked what her, he saw, her daddy was rich, so he marries her. That sounds a lot like the basis of uh, many marriages even today. So Judah and his wife have three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. They grow up. Judah took a wife for his oldest son named Tamar. And so Judah, contrary to Abraham's strong warning, has picked a Canaanite wife for himself and another Canaanite wife for his son. It's not surprising to read that Ur was so evil, the Lord took his life. His sin isn't mentioned, but it must have been pretty severe for the Lord to put him to death. So Judah tells his second son, go to Tamar, perform his duty as a brother-in-law. This is called Leverite marriage. From the Latin lever, meaning his husband's brother. It's actually a common custom in the ancient Near East, which was later codified into Mosaic law in Deuteronomy 25. If a man dies childless, his brother is to marry the widow, and the first son is regarded as the heir of the deceased older brother. And that preserves the rights of the firstborn. Well, Onan apparently marries Tamar, but he doesn't want to give his brother an heir, probably because he wants the firstborn rights for himself. And so for his refusal to raise up an heir for his brother, God strikes Onan dead. Now, he's not struck dead for practicing birth control. He's struck dead for his selfishness in wanting his brother's inheritance for himself. Now, Judah doesn't know why his sons are dropping dead. All he knows is 
They married Tamar and died. And he's not about to have his third son marry her. So he tells her to go back to her father's house, wait until Sheila's old enough to marry, but he has no intention of going through with it. Verse 11, he feared he would die like his brothers. In Judah's mind, Tamar is jinxed. So he essentially lies to her. He promises her to his third son, but has absolutely no intention of keeping his promise. Now, for centuries, God, uh, Satan has used intermarriage with ungodly people. And God has forbidden intermarriage with ungodly people. And Satan uses this to corrupt people from godly homes, and it still works. Judah is a nominal believer at best, but when he marries this Canaanite woman, it ensured that their children be thoroughly pagan. They're not uh, raised in the nurture and instruction of the Lord. And if God hadn't struck them dead for their sin, these sons of Judah would have turned his descendants towards paganism. The obvious application, if you're single, it's crucial you wait on the Lord for a godly mate. Corruption begins when you distance yourself from God's people, and it takes root when you marry outside of God's people. But Judah isn't concerned with marrying outside the faith. He's concerned for his son's life. So he makes Tamar a promise, but his intentions are false. So, of course, with the passing of years, the third son, Sheila, grows up, and Tamar realizes she's been had. She's not getting a husband. She's basically been sent off to die by herself. And as we'll see, she has some wrong intentions of her own. And wrong intentions lead to wrong actions. Wrong intentions lead to wrong actions. Picking up at verse 12. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Harah, the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Sheila was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come into me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. She said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then he arose and went away. And uh, taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who is at Anim at, at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also the men of the place said, no, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, 
bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. She said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. So several years have gone by. Sheila is now old enough to marry, but it's become obvious to Tamar that Judah isn't going to keep his word on the matter. Since she's been twice widowed, her chances of finding a husband and having children are slim to none. And not having children was considered a disgrace in that culture. And as a childless widow, Tamar wouldn't have been provided for when her parents died. So she concocts this plan to trick Judah into getting her pregnant so she'll be the mother of his heir. Judah's wife has apparently died at this point. He's mourned for her and moved on. And now it's the time of year to shear sheep. And this is a festive time. One commentator writes, when sexual temptation would be sharpened by the Canaanite cult, which encouraged ritual fornication as fertility magic. So Tamar takes off her widow's garments, dresses up as a cult prostitute with a veil, sits in a conspicuous place where she knew Judah would pass by. Sure enough, Judah saw her, assumed she was a prostitute, solicited her services. They negotiate a price, a goat, and she took some collateral so that he would pay later. But it's the collateral that she's after, not the payment. She took his seal and his cord and his staff. Now, the seal is kind of like their version of a visa card. A man wore a cylindrical seal on a cord around his neck. It'd be about this size. This is a whistle, but this gives you an idea. It's a round cylindrical seal. He'd wear it around his neck, and when you would transact a business deal, he would roll it in hot wax to sign the deal. And she also took his staff. So they consummated the deal. Tamar conceives, goes home, puts her widow garments back on. Judah sent his payment with his friend Hurrah. She, he can't find this prostitute. So they're now in an embarrassing position. If Judah reports the theft of his seal and staff by a prostitute or just keeps on looking for her, it's going to become public knowledge that a prostitute has gotten the better of him. And these kind of stories are swapped all over town, then as now. So Judah decides to absorb his losses and move on. Three months later, word comes, Tamar is pregnant. She's officially engaged to Shelah, Judah's son. And even though Judah never intends to go through the marriage because he thinks Tamar is jinxed, he acts highly offended and essentially calls for the death penalty. And then Tamar would be out of the picture and Sheila could take another woman as his wife. Or it could just be that his harsh reaction reflects the common double standard of the day. Men could go to prostitutes all they wanted, but women had to remain faithful. So he hypocritically condemns Tamar for the same sin that he's guilty of. Of course, in condemning her, he's really condemning himself. And as we find out, Tamar has all her bases covered. As they're taking her out to kill her, she calmly sends his seal and staff to him with the message, verse 25, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Well, Judah's been had. And now he admits he's been wrong and not giving Tamar to Shelah as he had promised. Now, the striking thing about this story is the way that Judah's been thoroughly corrupted, thoroughly conformed to this culture. 
He's on his way to party with his pagan friend, Hurrah. He sees a prostitute. And without even a thought of God, he turns to her. And his readiness for this and the calm way he handles the negotiations shows this probably isn't the first time. Tamar knew this or she wouldn't have dreamed of trying it. And when Judah gets caught, he doesn't actually say anything about his sin. He just admits that he's done wrong in not keeping his promise to give Tamar to his son in marriage. We're often shocked when we hear about Christians, especially uh, Christian leaders who fall into sin. But this story is here to remind us, to warn us. We're all prone to sin and corruption. If you think I would never do that, I could never fall into that kind of sin, you don't know your own heart. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, uh, or 1 Corinthians 10, 12, therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It can happen to anyone who drifts away from the Lord and his people. We all have to wage war daily against the lusts of the flesh. And we live in a culture that's easily as corrupt as Canaan. And our enemy, the devil, is much more concerned to make us fall into sin than he is to bother with those who don't make any claims about following Christ. We don't have to be transformed by the corruption around us. The story of Joseph in the next chapter shows that purity is possible even in the face of aggressive evil. The power for holiness comes from God who's both holy and gracious towards sinners. And our text shows us not only how God's people are prone to corruption, but also that God can enter our lives with unseen grace. With unseen grace. The last few verses here. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her room. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. So now comes Judah's humble declaration, verse 26, she is more righteous than I. Judah is essentially admitting that she was justified in taking matters into her own hands. And in doing so, he admits that his conduct had not been righteous. So Tamar is exalted and Judah is humbled. And people do change. This is the first hint of a change taking place in Judah as he publicly admits his failure. Judah's admission to Tamar suggests that he's learned something. In fact, Judah's going to develop remarkably during the years leading up to chapter 44 where he will act as a righteous man before Joseph, pleading for the welfare of Benjamin and offering his life as a pledge to save his little brother. For Judah, the effects of his deep sin, plus the godly example of others, namely Joseph, plus the hidden hand of God at work, so that at the end of his father Jacob's life, Jacob would confirm Judah as the scepter-bearing tribe through which would come the promised Messiah. And we'll get that in Genesis 49. He'll say, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff 
from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. By God's grace, Judah had become the man. In our day, it's common to sacrifice God's holiness on the altar of his grace. All the time, Christians excuse sin by saying, we're under grace. But God's grace doesn't exclude his discipline. Remember, it's the epistle in which which most champions God's grace, Galatians, that Paul writes, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will, will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will reap from the to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. Memorize it in a different version. It sometimes doesn't come out the same. So God in his holiness judges sinners and disciplines his people. And although Judah isn't struck dead like uh, his two older sons, he is disciplined. He has lost two sons. He's later going to go through the famine in the land, and he's going to have to bow before his brother, whom he despised. But the real toll on Judah's sin isn't in in his own life. It's not to himself. This chapter is giving us one of the primary reasons for the 400 years of slavery the nation of Israel has to go through. Judah's descendants went through 400 years in hardship, in part because of this sin. God told his people repeatedly, now and he will many more times in the future, not to intermarry with the people of the land. But they ignored him, and Judah is exhibit A. And therefore God ends up sending him away into slavery for 400 years in order to put an end to it. We may think we get away with our sin and it doesn't hurt anybody. But sin always exacts a toll. We reap what we sow. And our sin is often visited on our children to the third and fourth generation. God is a holy God. It means he must judge sin and discipline his people so they will share his holiness. But just as God's grace doesn't eliminate his holiness, so his holiness doesn't negate his grace. And just as the Jacob narrative began with the story of twins wrestling in their mother's womb, so now at the end of the Jacob narrative, there's a similar struggle. Again, just as with Jacob and Esau, the struggle results in the reversal of the right of the firstborn. In both cases, the younger gain ascendance over the older, establishing again that God elects whom he wills. Now the book of Ruth closes with a record of the ten generations from Perez to King David. The Gospel of Matthew, which we're going to turn to next year, will later quote these same ten generations leading to David and then describe the further generations to Christ. And as strange as this tale reads, Tamar appears to have been blessed. Through her determination to have the children of the promise She scratches and claws her way into Israel and secures for Judah the honor of fathering both David and the Messiah. And here's the great surprise to this story. Tamar, the Canaanite, who begins outside of God's people, turns out to be a heroine for God's people. 
Tamar aligns herself with the purposes of God, and through her, God's promise to Abraham is fulfilled. The Judah Tamar story teaches us that God's purpose is bound up with the growth of his people so that God's always at work in our lives, shaping us to serve his purpose as he marvelously does with Judah and Tamar. One scholar has written, in this way it's possible to see all of life as the medium of God's activity. He's not just active when we read our Bible and pray. He's active when we live in our world. Hence, when we wake up tomorrow, we don't wake up to a day without God. Tomorrow is God's day, for he made it, formed it, works in it. What's more, he wants you to enter tomorrow determined to be his person in it and to let Christ be formed in you as you allow his word to interact with your situation. People are not static. For we who believe this, there's great cause uh, for optimism. Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So with proper fear and trembling, we submit ourselves to God, believing that we are going to be changed and that unseen grace lies ahead. Final word of encouragement to this odd story. Tamar is the first of five women in the genealogy of Jesus as we have it in Matthew 1. There's Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Notably absent are the great mothers of Israel, Sarah, Rebekah, Leah, and Rachel. Now, why only these four and then Mary? Well, first, all four of Mary's predecessors are Gentiles. Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, Ruth was a Moabitess, and Bathsheba was a Hittite. And thus, Tamar and company declare that in Christ there is hope for the Gentiles. That should be good news for you, because most of you fall in that category. And that's why when Jesus' parents took him to the temple, Simeon swept up the baby in his arms and said, Lord, you are now letting your servant depart in peace. According to your word, for my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. I think there's one other reason these women are in the line of Christ. And this is sweet. Each of these women had a highly irregular, potentially scandalous marriage. Nevertheless, these unions are, by God's providence, links in the chain to the Messiah. And accordingly, each of them prepares the way for Mary, whose marriage situation is also peculiar, given the fact that she's pregnant and hasn't been married yet to Joseph. So the inclusion of the likes of Tamar in this family tree, on one hand, foreshadows the circumstances of the birth of Christ, and on the other hand, blunts any attack on Mary. God has worked his will amidst whispers of scandal. And what we have in Genesis 38 is a picture of what we're all like without the grace of God. All of us, whatever our sins, however politely we may commit them, However small they may seem, however little they're noticed, God can still work his will in our lives. This passage tells us that even the worst people can be loved and forgiven by God. They can be changed. Tamar doesn't stay a prostitute forever, and Judah didn't fail for the rest of his life. They met God, and things changed. And God can do for us what he did for them. He'll love us, be patient with us, change us, transform us, bless us 
our kids, future generations to come, all because he's a good God. And if God can change people like Judah and Tamar, you know what? There's nothing he can't handle. He can change you. He can love you. He can draw you to himself. He can save you. And one day you'll die and go to the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem. And when you arrive, you'll walk through the gates of that city. And when you do, don't forget to look up at the name inscribed over that gate because it just might be Judah. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Lord, our Lord, thanks for giving us time to study your word. Thanks for this brutally honest story of Judah and Tamar. Thanks for demonstrating your grace to bad guys and wounded women. Thank you that there's room in your family for Judah and Tamar and the rest of us. Thank you that we're not beyond your grace. Thank you the blood of Jesus covers our sin. Thank you for welcoming us into your kingdom and that someday we can walk through Judah's gate. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.